that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Well, good to have you here. Uh, my name's Gav. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, I genuinely mean that it's great to have you here. We, we love uh, when you come and you join us, whether you, you're regularly here or you're visiting. We hope you enjoy your time uh, here at City Light with us. So thanks for being here today. Um, to begin, I just want to say quickly, um, as a church we've been doing the... Uh, you might have jumped on board or not, but with a Read Scripture app. And uh, you know that it's been a bit of a slog to the Old Testament. We made it through. We arrived. We're in the Promised Land. New Testament. So if, you, uh, if you've been bogged down there with the Read Scripture app, you've given up, jump back on board. New Testament, two chapters a day, great. Um, a good thing to help you keep reading the Bible regularly. And so uh, uh, jump back on if uh, you've fallen off. Get back on the train. It'd be great. Also, uh, just quickly, uh, a few, uh, about a month or so ago, we did some surveys and some pledges where um, talking about giving and serving, that sort of stuff. We've, we've got the results of all those things, and I've written a brief little editorial on that, and I've put it on the Facebook group. Please read that. Uh, that has big implications for us as a church. And so I'd love you to just spend some time reading that, sticking out, praying about that, asking any questions. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in small groups this week, but also going forward as a church. But let's, uh, let's uh, look at what uh, Ebb's read for us, and I'm going to pray and ask that God would... Uh, speak through me, and that, uh, that he would help you to hear what he wants to say to you this afternoon. That it's no accident you are here today with us in this building, that God, the creator of the universe, wants to address your heart and mind. I want to pray that that would be the case, and you be, have ears and open hearts that listen. So let's talk to God together. God, we want to thank you for, for, for today and for bringing us here. We want to thank you that you speak, you don't remain silent, you're not distant, uh, or, or, or you don't push us away, but you draw near. I want to thank you that you are here among us today by the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to pray that we'd have hearts that are ready to be taught by you, that are ready to hear from you, that have minds that are ready to engage with you and do the hard work to listen. Lord, I pray that you would just use me as your servant to speak through, that I'd speak only words from you and words of truth. And through this and through today, we would see again the beauty of Jesus Christ and the gospel and what we have in him and how we need to stand firm and hold on to the hope we have that is found in the resurrection of Christ. So Lord, please bless our time this afternoon, we ask. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me start with a little, a little confession as I do sometimes. Um, over the past few months, I've gone from really, really, really disliking The Bachelor to just disliking it. Uh, it's, it's gr- I've got to say, I no longer loathe that it. it's grown on me. Good work, Katie, you've, you've won me over. Um, but I bring this up because the finale, The Bachelor was this week, right? The finale, Maddie J. Maddie J, the man who was burnt last season by The Bachelorette, found healing in the redemption in the arms of Laura. 
Not Tara, much to this dismay of Cam, nor in the arms of Elise, much to my disliking. But we could all really see it coming. We could see it coming that, you know, Laura was his girl. And what I find interesting about this whole show, The Bachelor, is just one, firstly, quite obvious, how staged it all is. Um, there are extravagant dates where, you know, Maddie takes this person out on this picnic and then down this uh, river and, this, and champagne, he's like, I've organized this for you. He hasn't organized for, any, for anyone. That's not he's done that. The producers have done it and he claims it every time. He has those cheesy poses and those cheesy lines that he gets fed by the producers. I find it so unnatural. But I also find it quite interesting, is maybe a little sad, is the, actually the whole premise of the show. And it's like uh, there was a scene on Thursday night that Katie told me about. I didn't watch it. No, I was watching it. And, um, and uh, Maddie had his chiseled abs out as usual. Um, and, he was, and he was leaning on the edge of an infinity pool, overlooking Thailand, as he always does, right? As he always does. And, uh, and he was deep in thought. And, uh, and then the voiceover comes and it's Maddie speaking, right? And it's, it's Maddie speaking his thoughts, which is so brilliant. Um, anyway, Maddie just says something like, you know, um, I just have to choose between two amazing women, and it's so hard, and I just want to fall in love and spend the rest of my life happy with them. And it's almost like he was saying, you know, I find the girl, fall in love, bam, rest of life over, we run from the sunset, happy ever, a happy ending to this, this amazing fairy tale. True love. And if you watch this show for more than 20 minutes, you hear lines like, um, this, the, the, this, 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 the show's almost built on this premise of, Life's purpose and true happiness is found in falling in love, finding the right person, and that will make you happy. And this is what life is to be about. You watch it and you, and you hear lines like, is there a connection? Is there a spark? And you have all these contestants that come on and they're so keen and they're so committed to finding true love, they're willing to date a guy whilst he is dating 20 other women and kissing all of them at the same time. And they're forced to live with those contestants that they were dating this person. And they put themselves to this, this on national TV, knowing that most of them will have their heart broken on national TV, but they're, just, they're holding on this glimmer, this hope, that they may find love or Mr. and Mrs. Right and live happy ever after. And part of us, I think, there's part of us that, that resonates with because we all watch it, including me now. Um, but, it, but, is, but is that it? Is that what, what, you know, do we believe the bachelor when it says this is what life is to be about, to be pursued? Finding that true love. Maybe it's not, maybe you don't like The Bachelor, and maybe the idea of happy ever after is not what life's about for you. But the question is then, what do we build our lives upon? What do we build our lives upon? What do we pursue? What's worth pursuing? What's worth investing in? What will hold up and give us significance and meaning? Because we all long for that. Is it, is it our work? Is it our stuff? Is it possessions? Is it career? Is it to be known? Is it a house? Is it accumulating experiences? Is it family? What's worth it? What's worth pursuing? If you go forward and you think about on your deathbed, what do you want to say about your life? What sort of life do you want to have lived? What will you regret? What do you, what do you want to build your life upon? I was talking to a friend of mine who's in his mid-40s, and he was talking about some of his friends who are also in their mid-40s, and he was saying that a lot of them are going through a midlife crisis at the moment. And we hear of midlife crisis, a thing where you know, people work really hard for their 20s and their 30s and their early 40s, and they sort of hit their mid-40s and start thinking about, well, half my life is almost over now. And what have I done? What am I living for? 
And often there's this big scramble to go through their heads thinking about, well, they, they change their career and get a new job and they buy a Ferrari and they go overseas and they're trying to search, like, what do I want my life to look like as I go forward? What do I want to build my life upon? Today as we read this passage that Ebbs read for us, Paul, the writer of this letter, is talking, about to, talking to a church that he loves, that he started, and he's urging them to hold fast to what he says is of first importance. And he's calling them to remember what he taught them and to receive it and to hold on to it and keep it at the very center of their lives and not move on from it. In this passage, today, God will speak to us and he'll remind us and call us maybe for the first time to pursue something that is worth pursuing. Something that will stand the test of time, that will bring meaning and purpose, that is worth building our lives upon. And my absolute hope and prayer today is that you will see and know and believe that something is Jesus. That Jesus is worth building your life upon. He is worth going all in for. That's my hope for today. And I want to show you this from this passage we just looked at. Uh, in, in, as, as we're saying, the book of Corinthians that we're looking at today was written as a, like this corrective to a young church. They had a bunch of issues and Paul's writing this letter. He's penning this letter to a real people in real time and this bunch of issues he's addressing. And today we enter this last sort of section where he's addressing an area of the church. And here he's writing to the church and he's answering this whole question broadly around this idea of the resurrection of the dead, the raising back to life again, the afterlife. And it seems like some in the church maybe have been influenced from either inside or outside of the church. The people have been saying there is no afterlife, there is no resurrection of the dead, no one raises from the dead. Therefore, if, that means, if that's the case, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead either. And this is a massive issue for the church. Mostly because, because, mostly because Paul goes on to say that if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus isn't raised, then sins haven't been paid for, death hasn't been defeated, therefore the whole Christian faith is pointless. Look at this verse on the screen behind me. It's what Paul says later on. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. Paul is super clear here. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically in bodily resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins, your faith is futile, and then following a dead saviour, you are to be made fun of and pitied among all people. He's saying the resurrection is not a minor, small point. It is the heart and the crux of the gospel of following Jesus. It is front and centre. It's, a key, it's the key to the good news of Christ. No resurrection, no Christian faith. So the fact that this young church is doubting and potentially being led away to no longer believe in the resurrection is a huge issue for the church. And Paul is writing this lastly to try and help them to remember and to hold on to this. What we're going to look in these sentences today is that Paul is going to urge them to stand firm not to move on, not to forget, not to be led astray, but to hold firm to what he taught them, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for them. So let's have a look at what Ebbs read for us, sentences 1 and 2. I'll read it for you here. It says on the screen behind me, it says, Now, Paul speaking, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. 
points to begin by reminding them. He reminds them and refreshes their memory of what they believed, who they're about. And they know this and they've believed it. And Paul says, you've received it. And not only have you received it, you've stood in it and you stand in it. This way of life. That's what you're about as a people and a church. The gospel of goodness of Jesus shapes all of your life. And this is where you stand. So Paul's saying, why move? You've got it. Don't move on. And he's saying, don't move on. Why? Because, as he says, uh, it's through the gospel that they are being saved, he says there. They are being saved. And he uses the present tense. They are being saved. It's this ongoing process. What does he mean by being saved? Like we often think, you know, that we have been saved once and for all, which, which is right. But what does this being saved mean? Let me try and show you this a little bit. In, a, in, in the, another book in the Bible called Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 8 and on the screen here, Paul, Paul writes, for it is by grace you have been saved. It's, it's done. It's accomplished. It's finished. You have been saved through faith. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, he adds, he goes that this, you are being saved, so it's an ongoing process. So how do we um, um, put these two together? Well, firstly, it's, it's an accomplished idea. We know that on the cross that Jesus died once and for all. And 1 Peter 3.18 says there, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. On the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. Meaning that sins have been paid for Judgment's been paid for, guilt removed, it's once and for all. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2 that you have been saved by grace. We have been saved. The Christian life is not about that you are saved and you've got to keep working out if you're worthy or if you're worth it. No, your standing before God is based upon Jesus' finished, accomplished work on the cross. You are saved. Sins past, present and future, paid for, atoned for, we are saved. So then why does he write in 1 Corinthians 15 that we are being saved, it's an ongoing process? Well, the context, the context explains it. He's saying that, saying that to us, as we believe and you hold on to following Jesus, and as you regularly and daily are reminded of what Jesus has done for you, what you have in him, as we gather here at a church and remind each other how good it is to follow Jesus, we sing songs about the gospel, as we pray for one another, one another and hear testimonies of God's work in our lives, as we open the Bible, as we hear sermons about Jesus, as we continue to hold on to the hope we have in Jesus and stand in the gospel, we are continually being held on and being saved. It's an ongoing process. We are being saved as we keep walking in the Christian life, holding on to the promises we have in the gospel. You are being saved. That's why he says at the end of sentence two there, he says, you are being saved if you hold on or if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. He's encouraged them to keep on being saved by holding on to the gospel they have first believed and been given by Paul. He knows, he knows that they didn't believe in vain in the beginning, but he's worried they are slowly slipping. They are slowly being tempted to move on, to let go, to be influenced, to doubt, and move on to what they believed. And Paul's worried they are drifting away Jesus. They're drifting. As some of you know, um, I've talked about before, from New Year's Day this year, I decided to go off processed sugar. And um, I, I wanted to get healthy. I was starting to feel my age a little too much and I wasn't exercising enough. And so, and I was eating way too much desserts. I love desserts. I could eat it morning and night. Anyway, um, uh, I decided to go off processed sugar. Now, this was not, it has not been uh, easy 
Uh, everything has sugar in it. Um, everything. Processed sugar. So I try to just drink, I just, I've just decided to drink water only, avoid all sauces, check the labels of everything I eat. I even made myself like almonds. Wow, that was tough. Um, uh, and uh, in, the, in, the, in this process so far, I've seen a bunch of changes early on. I got healthier and it was uh, really uh, paying off. But what I found as I've got on, gone on in time is that I haven't seen as many changes lately. And I think my body's got used to the lack of sugar and I've just sort of, of plateaued. Uh, but after eight months of this and with few changes recently, I've noticed something happening. I've noticed a very slow, subtle drift. A drift back to the dark side. To sugar. And uh, it started around the time when my kids tried to trick me to eating sugar. Um, <laughs> sneaky little kids. They, <laughs> they made a pancake and put some maple syrup on it and told me to eat it. And uh, I said, was there any on there? They said, no, but I ate it. I'm like, oh, it is on there. Suck in. Anyway, um, <laughs> and they loved that and laughed a lot. And then, uh, but then it's been since then, I sort of, you know, just eating the, their, their hot chips here and there with sauce on it. And the other night, Katie and I went out for our wedding anniversary. And I said, look, the sugar-free diet's off tonight. Let's just go at it. And uh, all, uh, all slow compromise for a gradual drifting, a gradual giving in. It hasn't been a deliberate thing. Uh, on my behalf, but just slowly moving away from what I wanted to do. And, and a lot of us often do this, but we, we start it with the desired goal or purpose, and we don't mean to, we sort of give in and compromise and, and, and shortcut, and we slowly just drift from, away from what we actually want to achieve. And this is what Paul is worried about here in the church in Corinth. This is why he's reminding them again of what they first believed and he's calling them to hold fast the gospel of Jesus Christ and not drift and not be distracted or not compromise. Not to follow what looks easy or the crowd or, or what sounds popular or what looks attractive but rather he wants them to think to engage their mind and remember who Jesus is and what they have in him to hold fast. And I think this word from Paul has so much to say to us and to me. And there's such a danger of drifting away from Jesus. Such a danger. You know, in the Christian life, you can't stay still for very long, either going forwards or going backwards. And we live in a culture where following Jesus means you are in the minority. And so walking as a follower of Jesus is not easy. It is hard. It is hard. And it will take focused daily effort and strength to fight the good fight, as Paul says. And so it's easy to be distracted, it's easy to compromise, it's easy to be led away. It's easy to give in. And sometimes you give in enough that you finally let go of it altogether. Very few people I've seen who walk away from Jesus say, Gav, I'm out. More of a slow, gradual drift. And I've said it before, we've had people who, sit, who have sat here among us over the last four years who have slowly drifted to eventually say, I'm out. God's reminding us here not to drift. He's reminding us here of what we have in Jesus and to cling to that day by day. As Ebbs was saying before, listening and considering and fixing your eyes on the goal, on Jesus, on eternity, and reminding ourselves day by day by day. For the follower of Jesus, drifting is deadly. This afternoon, God is calling us, you and I, to action. The great hymn that we sing here at church, which says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We can all feel like that. 
the remedy of what Paul is saying here is be reminded of what you have in Jesus, the gospel. Meet with him, fight day by day, to spend time to remind yourself. He hears so many voices every day. How many of those voices remind us of what we have in Jesus? question worth asking yourself is this. Where am I at with, where am I at with Jesus at the moment? And how, and how would I describe my relationship with him right now? And am I okay with that? Am I okay with that? Paul warns the church, he's warning us not to drift. But Paul doesn't leave it there. He keeps going on. He wants to clearly spell out what this church, to this church, what they believe, what the gospel really is. I want to, I want to show you this. Sentence 3, Paul says, uh, for, uh, for what I delivered to you as a first importance, sorry, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. So Paul is saying to you, this is of highest importance, the highest priority, it's the central thing. What was it? Have a look at what he says. That Christ died for sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he appeared to uh, Cephas, which is Peter, then to, then to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to, the, to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's basically describing the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible. Jesus' death and resurrection. He delivers it in four sections. Firstly, he says that Christ died for sins according to scriptures. And this is what they believe. This is the gospel of first primary importance. He said that Jesus died for, for, uh, for our sins. In fact, that he stood in our place, taking away our sin and our rebellion against God. The Bible says that all people, all of humanity, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is, that we have not acknowledged God as creator or life giver. We have not sought to have a relationship with him. We haven't honored him or thanked him for any of it. The Bible says we have rebelled against God and we are enemies with him. And the Bible calls this sin. And we are all standing in, 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 under this condemnation. But out of love, Jesus stood in our place, the Bible says, and he took away our sin, took away my sin. And he paid for it all on the cross, taking away all of my guilt and my shame and my judgment. And he declares me innocent, even though I was guilty and I am guilty. And he suffered the wrath of God for sin, the condemnation for sin in my place, for me, on my behalf, out of his great love for me. And, the, and, that, and that punishment should have fallen on me, not him. He gets my sin, and I get his perfect, perfect record. And, as, and, and all this happened, not as an accident or a surprise, but as Paul says, according to Scripture, according to the Old Testament, written before Jesus. The Old Testament was, wrote, was written before Jesus came to earth, and it spoke of this promised king, this Messiah who would come and rescue his people, give them hope, and heal them, and rule over them forever. I want to show you this one small passage from the Old Testament that speaks of this Messiah, this, this king who's going to come. And in the book of Isaiah, it talks about this one who is going to be both a, a servant and a king at the same time. Look at Isaiah 53, 4-6. I'll read it for you. It says this. Surely he took up our pain... And bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace 
was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I love that line. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we have been healed. Saying here, Jesus died for our sin to bring us peace with God. Our sin that separated us from God. For enmity between us and God was taken away. Peace with God now restored. That's what Jesus did. And Paul continues with the next line. Jesus, in sentence four, Jesus was buried. This is important that the gospel says that Jesus was buried, that, that the burial of Jesus was important. It's a, it's a historical fact. It happened. Jesus physically died and was buried in a tomb. Not in a hole in the ground or a coffin. No, he was placed in a tomb, a, ro- a stone rolled in front of that. Everyone knew where it was. People would visit it. The Romans knew where it was. The Jews knew where it was. And the Christians knew where it was. Everyone knew this was a real place. And there were witnesses to this. People would go and visit it. And Paul's trying to say, this is not, the story of Jesus is not a legend or a tale that's made up. It's fact. It's history. Then Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God raised Jesus from the dead. And this is the Easter story. Easter Sunday story. The empty tomb. Jesus died on the cross facing God's wrath and judgment in our place. He physically dies and then he is then placed in a tomb and three days later, as he predicted, he rises to new life. He rises from the dead. And his death shows that his, that his sacrifice for sin was sufficient. And it shows that death could not hold him down and he has defeated death once for all and he rises in victory. And the Bible says for those who follow Jesus, they too will rise to new life. They will rise and be with glory with him back in heaven. Jesus has defeated death. This is no small thing. This is, this is the gospel. And Paul wants the Corinthian church to know this and have no doubt over this. Have a look at what he says in Genesis 5 to 7. He says, And then Jesus appeared to Peter, Kephas, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of who were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then sneak back to heaven. He, though he appeared to a bunch of people. And Paul names them. He even says to the Corinthians, these people that have seen Jesus, they're still alive. So if you have any doubts, just go and chat with them. Go and visit them and talk to them. They are eyewitness accounts. Paul is inviting us to test this theory, to test that whether the gospel is true or not, whether the resurrection happened or not. He's inviting them. Paul's not trying to hide this away and saying, oh, please don't talk to them. He said, no, 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 here are the names. You can go and ask them if you'd like to. He's not concerned that they'll find out that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. He's saying, try it. Jesus is alive. And Peter wants the church to be reminded to know and believe and hold on to this fact and realize that they have everything in Jesus because he rose in victory. And I don't know about about you and your faith, but my faith, this is front and center. This is central. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead physically, bodily, and there's evidence and history for this, makes me certain to follow Jesus. There's no point, there is zero point in following Jesus if he didn't rise from the dead. Paul says later on in in Corinthians, he says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Go and have fun, do what you want. But if he did, that changes everything. 
It changes everything. And I wonder if you've met someone where you, you've met them, you meet them for the first time and you offer a few times and you feel like that uh, they, they, they talk about all the people they know or the, the people, place they've been, they name drop. Um, they've been at this place and this place. And they, you know how they're just trying to impress you. They're trying to talk themselves up, trying to impress you and make them like you, uh, like them. And they claim a lot, but you doubt their stories. I went to school with a guy like this. His name was Justin. And um, I didn't mention his last name. Um, anyway, his name was Justin. And he, he, I, I felt sorry. He was always in trouble, Justin. And I always felt sorry for him. And he had a hard home life. And it was shown his behavior at school. Anyway, Justin didn't, didn't have a lot of friends. And uh, he was always saying he did this or did that. And there was felt like there was no way that he could do the things that he said he was, could, uh, that he had done or things that he had. And it was just to get attention and to impress but there was never a way to test what he said was true or not. One of the things that he would claim was that there was this big surf brand at the time um, called Mount Wuji. And it's actually a big surf brand still. And it's all in these... Um, my brother was a, a surfer. And so in his surf magazines, there was always this stuff about this surf brand called Mount Wuji, which is up in Queensland. And uh, he would claim... He would also claim that... Justin would claim that his auntie owned this company. And uh, everyone at school used to laugh at him for it. And no one would ever take him seriously, ever. Then one day, I got, I got invited to go to his house. I didn't want to go, but I thought it would be nice to be his friend. So I went over there. And I went to his bedroom. And I looked at his room, and he had all this Mount Wuji stuff everywhere, all over his room, everywhere. And uh, posters and surfboards and stuff. And there was no way he could have had enough money to buy that. So, look, I'm thinking, well, how did he get this stuff? Then, then I was talking to his mum. His mum mentioned she had a sister who lived in Queensland who owned this surf company called Mount Wuji. And from then on, I thought, well, everything he said, I've now got to reassess. I've now got to think about maybe he has done what he said he's done. If he can do this and it's true, then maybe I've got to think through what he's been talking about. See, if someone claims something, says they're going to do something, and they do it and come through, then surely everything else they say needs to be carefully considered. How much more then when someone claims they're going to rise from the dead and they do it? If Jesus rose from the dead... And before he did, he said and predicted he would do it in Mark 8 and, and throughout the Gospels. He said, I'm going to be die at the hands of the rulers and I'll rise again in three days. And he said that and he did that. Then surely every other claim he made must be taken seriously. I don't know where you stand with Jesus today. But if Jesus rose from the dead, as he said he was going to, then surely he's worth looking into and considering and, to, and consider following he claimed to be God in the flesh. He claimed to be God on earth. He claimed to be the one that would give life and life to the full. He claimed to be the judge of all, the Lord, the King, the ruler. He claimed to give life and freedom and forgiveness of sins through his death on the cross. And he offers that to all people right now, today. If you don't know where you stand with Jesus and you want to know more, I want to encourage you to, to come and to chat to me or to Ez or to Jez or write in those slips that you've got. I want to know more about Jesus. Paul says this, what I'm talking about right here, is of first importance. In first importance. It is way too important to leave for another day or another time. I want to say today is the day. Jesus is calling you now. Come to me. Come and know who I am. I've beaten death for you. Come follow. Come and do it today. 
But Paul finishes this section off, and Anna finishes this section off with looking at, at his, this last section where he gets quite personal. He talks about his personal experience. Look at sentences 9 to 11 with me on the screen. He says, For I am a least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. Sentence 8 before this, Paul saying that he saw the risen Lord Jesus himself. And, uh, and he, too was an impo- uh, he too was an apostle appointed by God. But he says he's unworthy to be one. Why? Well, he says before, well, we know before he met Jesus, and he says this, before Paul met the risen Lord Jesus, he made it his absolute mission to find followers of Jesus, have them arrested, and get them killed. That's what he did. That was his job. Stop and think about that just for a minute, right? We think of people who are, who are killers and terrorists at the moment and think that's, that is the worst, right? But it is. Paul was a killer. He killed Christians. He killed innocent people. What was, the, what was their crime? They followed Jesus. That was their crime. Paul made it his mission, before he met Jesus, to destroy the church. Destroy it. Wipe it off the face of the earth. Just to snuff it out. That was what he wanted to do. That was his mission. And so Paul... Once he came to know Jesus, he felt so guilty about this. His guilt killed him. He was and, deeply, he was and is and deeply aware of his past. But for Paul, knowing and feeling the weight of his past and what he did to the church made God's grace, God's mercy and God's forgiveness so much more deeper and real and sweeter for this man. He knows he didn't deserve to be saved or loved by God or forgiven by God, have a relationship with God. But He was. Paul was accepted and was forgiven all through the death and resurrection of Jesus. A killer, a murderer, was forgiven and accepted by Jesus. And Paul wants the Corinthian church to know his experience and the grace that God has poured out on him and the grace that has transformed him from going from a killer of Christians to becoming a Christian himself. And then he's been given this mission to go to the world and he can't help but talk about this forgiveness that he's found and tell everyone about it. It overflows in him. He can't help but share this grace and mercy and this freedom that he's found in Jesus. And he wants everyone to experience what he experienced. And he says there that he worked harder than anyone else, but not him, God's grace at work in him. And I love as we look at this, I love this idea that there is no one who is too far gone for God. There is no one that he cannot reach. His arm to save, his merciful arm to save is not too short. If there was anyone that God would not save, would not love, surely it's someone who's killed the church or tried to kill the church. But no, Jesus met him, loved him, forgave him, then sent him out. You know, we often, I think we can often sit and we can often doubt, does God still love me? Will he still love me? Will he hold on to me? We're reminded here that God's grace and God's love and God's mercy is for you for all time because it's been shown and set in the cross of Christ. He cannot love you anymore and will not love you any less. And he's called you a child and he's given you the Holy Spirit and he says, you are mine. And this is the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that Paul says is of first importance. And this is the gospel that Paul says is worth standing on and having central in your life. 
The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is one of God's unconditional love for people no matter who they are or what they've done. And this is the gospel that Paul says to stand firm in. To finish this off, I want to, I want to just read something from one of my favorite authors and writers and, and teachers and pastors, a guy called Tim Keller who's out of New York City. And it's an article that he wrote called The Centrality of the Gospel. The Centrality of the Gospel. I'm going to read it for you. Just, there'll be a few key points on the screen, but just, just try and listen to what I want to say. He says this, We never get beyond the Gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The Gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The Gospel is not the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but the way we make progress in the Christian life. We are not made right with God by the gospel and then, and then sanctified or made more like Him through disobedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and we are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. It is very common in the church to think as followers, follows, the gospel is for people who don't know Jesus. They need to be saved. But once saved, you go and work through hard work and obedience. Colossians 1, 6 shows this is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that is not arising from and in line with the gospel will not grow you. It will strangle you. Our, problem co- our problems come from a failure to apply, to live out the gospel. That's when Paul leaves the Ephesian church. He says he commits to them the word of his grace, which can build you up. The main problem then in the Christian life is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not used the gospel in and, all, in and on all parts of our life. Richard Lovelace says the main, that most people's problems are a failure to be orientated around the gospel, a failure to grasp and believe it through and through. Martin Luther says the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our own heads day by day. The gospel is not easily comprehended. Paul says the gospel only does its renewing work in us as we understand it in all its truth. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel. But we do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of it. A stage of renewal is always the discovery of a new implication or application of the gospel, seeing more of its beauty and more of its truth. This is, this is true for an individual or for a church. I love what Keller says there, the idea of the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life. We don't move on from it. It is the A to Z. We never grow out of it. Instead, we grow in it and up in it. And its application and how it applies to our life in every sphere. I love the gospel, like this idea of a diamond. There's so many facets and sides to it. And then we understand truly who we are, what it means to be human as we understand the gospel. The gospel is to be the center of our lives. What we build our lives when we stand firm in it as it points towards eternity. I want to say, let's be a church, let's be followers of Jesus who hold fast to it, who grow in it and, as, and, and fall more in love with Jesus day by day what we have in Him. And as we do that, understand Him, and we understand what He has done, then let it shape who we are and what we live for day by day. Let's be that church. I want to pray for us. God, we want to, we want to, we want to pray 
that the, the truth of Jesus and his death and resurrection for us will not become cold or stale or we get used to it or numb to it, but we would see it in all its glory, in all its beauty. The gospel shows us just how far from you we were, how imperfect we are, but it shows us also how loved we are and cherished we are and how we're a new creation, have a new identity that is stamped upon us as a child of God and nothing can shake that. We want to pray that we would live out of this truth, that we would not be distracted or led astray or drift, that by your Holy Spirit we would fight the good fight every single day to be reminded of who you are. Help us as the church to remind one another building our lives upon the hope that we have in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your love and thank you for the cross and thank you that we are your children all because of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. We give you time to reflect.